Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, hello everybody. Uh, my name is Ursula Hackett of the New Books Network, New Books in Public Policy podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome the two authors of the book, The Judicial Tug of War, How Lawyers, Politicians and Ideological Incentives Shape the American Judiciary, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. I've got Adam Bonnaker, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Stanford University, and Maya Sen, who is Professor of Public Policy at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Now, I enjoy this book very much. Um, it deploys one of the largest data sets ever amassed on lawyers and judges' political ideologies in order to shed light on fights over the American judiciary. Um, and first of all, I'd like Maya um, to hear a bit about how this project came about. So um, can you tell me the origin story for the judicial tug of war? Um, how did you and Adam come to co-author this project? Um, so Adam and I have been conversing about topics in the space for almost 10 years. Uh, we met um, kind of by chance when Adam was visiting at the University of Rochester when I was there in as, as an assistant professor. And Adam was presenting his very interesting and influential work on how to scale ideologies for the mass public, essentially. And this is part of Adam's dissertation work that he's published extensively on, and you should check it out. It's excellent work. And Adam and I got to talking about um, how useful his work could be for studying the judiciary in the United States. So for other kinds of political actors, we have very good measures on how to evaluate or estimate ideology because we can look at the votes of most people. Like we can look at how Congress members vote on bills and how the president um, responds or signs bills or does not sign bills. But it's much harder to do when you look at judges because judges um, don't vote on bills the way that congressional representatives do. A lot of them sit and hear cases on their own, or if they sit with colleagues, it'll be one or two colleagues, pr- probably two other colleagues. And it makes it much harder to scale votes the way that you would scale for members of Congress. And so Adam's methodology 
which relies on campaign contributions and financial disclosure data, um, was very exciting to learn about because it opened up a host of possibilities for studying how ideology is represented in the judiciary. And so that was the initial spark that started a research agenda that I think has encompassed something like 10 papers um, plus the book. But over time, we got to talking about different components of the judiciary, how it reflects or does not reflect the population, whether and to what extent it reflects the interests of politicians. And then we gravitated over to this idea of thinking about the legal profession as an independent and politically active constituent. Um, and so over time, we got to thinking about this framework of the tug of war. Um, so that's that's kind of a long way of answering the question of how we got to the book. But it started off by just talking about the, the methodology and how we could apply that to interesting questions um, looking at the judiciary. And one of the things that I find fascinating is a, as a Brit looking in from the outside here and your work is I mean, we, we have a fair number of lawyers in our own um, parliament, um, but the numbers for Congress are absolutely extraordinary. It's such an outlier um, in terms of the proportions of, of lawyers in American politics today and sort of the enormous influence that they have um, had in American politics and history over time. And so I just, I mean, what what are your sense, um, Adam, of, of why it is that there are so many lawyers in American politics um, and, and what are the consequences being of that, that, that uh, enormous representation of judicial interests? Well, uh, the history of sort of the political power of lawyers in American politics goes back a very long time, actually all the way back to the colonial era. So part of it was inherited from the British system where lawyers um, have for a very long time also been very important to the political system. But the United States, um, the sort of path of development of American political institutions um, in many ways um, developed hand in hand with the legal profession and many of the interests of the legal profession and the culture um, really was um, was very prominent. Uh, and this, so if you look at the number of lawyers in the U.S. Congress over time, going back to the beginning of the U.S. Congress, um, there were periods where nearly seventy to eighty percent of the House and the Senate were were lawyers. We're now only around half um, of the total body of both, of both chambers, but that's still a massive overrepresentation, and um, this is we think has had a number of important consequences in American politics. Um, uh, it's not terribly surprising that it has made um, being a lawyer much more lucrative in the United States um, because of the way that the political power uh, of of the profession has spilled over. But I think most importantly, and what we really zero in on in in the book is this notion that one of the consequences of the political power of lawyers in American politics has been the elevation of the, the courts and uh, courts as this very important political institution, um, one that makes a lot of um, crucial decisions about what American politics and American life is going to look like. And this is, and as a consequence of this, um, this has made the courts, especially the Supreme Court, this sort of prize uh, within American politics and has set the stage for these huge political battles that we see raging over who's going to control the judiciary. And it's something that really set, sets the United States apart from most other democracies um, and something that we really uh, think is an important uh, thing to understand that comes out of the book. So you, oh, yeah, please, Maya. One, one thing that I, th I think this... Um, 
You know, I think this idea of why there's so many politicians who are lawyers is really interesting. And I think Adam and I, we touch upon this a lot in our book, but there's even more that's interesting and we're thinking about. I actually presented portions of the book at a talk at Harvard Law School earlier this year. And I, I know Adam's presented our work there as well. And it's really interesting to see the reaction of the law students when they hear portions of our book, because to them, it to some of them, I should say, it's actually very obvious Like many students go to law school in part because they're very interested in politics and there's no, there's no kind of finishing school for politicians. Um, But law school has sort of served that role in the United States for a very long time. And so if there are people who are interested in politics or pursuing a career in politics, one of the first things they'll do in the United States, at least, is they'll go to law school. And so many people have taken that path. And if you go to top law schools today, there are many students who are interested in in the law because primarily because it's a stepping stone to a career in politics. And so they're laying down these networks, informal and formal networks for potential careers in politics. Like I, I will say that I don't think I don't think all students are like this. And I think all students kind of sense that there's great uncertainty about a career in politics. And so so some pursue it and some don't. But I think there's no question that many students who end up in law schools do so because they're interested or would like to keep that possibility open. And what you're describing in this book is all these many ways in which these, these le- this legal realm and the political realms are so intertwined with one another and the, con- the, the conflict that comes out of that. I mean, Adam mentioned this. So, so there's this central concept in your book about the, the tug of war. Um, uh, that's the that's the sort of heart of your analysis of judicial politics. So 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 my you know, who are the competents here and what are they what exactly are they trying to do? I mean, what's the beef? Um, what's the issue? Yes, are we? The tug of war metaphor is what we use to basically describe the fact that the courts in the United States are a political prize because whoever controls the courts controls a very important part of policymaking in the United States. And you can conceive that in different terms. Like you can think of the courts as what prevents progressive policy from moving forward. If perhaps you're in the more conservative part of the spectrum, right? You view the courts as being very important to stop policies that you don't like. Um, if you're more liberal, maybe you see the courts as being important, an important pathway to protecting minority rights and reproductive rights. So no matter where you start, where, where you stand politically, the courts are a very important prize for you. And you want your best to, to have people sit on the courts who represent your policy and political preferences. Now, this tug of war. So, so the courts are the booty. So who's fighting over them? Well, there's at least two players in the tug of war that are pulling sometimes on the same side, but sometimes totally in conflict. So one is politicians, because politicians want very favorable judges sitting on those courts. They want, you know, if you're Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate uh, minority leader, you want people like Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, and you will do whatever it takes to get those people on the court. But if you are a member of the legal profession, and this is where we, I think, really contribute to understanding the composition of the courts, if you're someone who's an elite lawyer, you also want your interests represented on the courts. And you, for the reasons that Adam talked about, you elite lawyers have historically had a very close connection to the courts. Judges are elite lawyers. They were trained as lawyers. They come from this environment. They share the same um, sort of practical and business um, preferences that the rest of the legal profession does. And they, many of them also share kind of the same ideological preferences too. Um, and so if you're a member of the legal profession, you also want to see the court's reflective of your policy and political preferences. And so we think the judicial tug of war is sort of 
can you can think about it in terms of politicians and the legal profession kind of fighting over what the courts eventually look like. Like sometimes they're pulling on the same side. Sometimes there's a there's harmony between those two. Um, so politicians are really in line with the legal establishment. You get that um, mostly in kind of more liberal leaning places right now for reasons that Adam and I are we can talk about at great length. Um, but sometimes they're really in conflict. And you see that in a bunch of different states, uh, American states, that that the legal profession is really at odds with political elites, um, in particular, when Republicans are in control of like a state assembly or something. And then you see a lot of conflict. Um, and so that's that's really what we mean. This conflict between the legal profession and politicians, that that really is at the heart of the judicial tug of war that we describe in the book. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to come to this point about kind of alignment and and, and not being aligned um, and, and this sort of symbiosis um, relationship that you describe between um, between lawyers and, and the political class, at least at various points in certain, certain points in American history. And so I'd like I'd definitely like to come to that. But I, I'd like also just to pick up. I mean, you mentioned um, Amy Coney Barrett and of course, she she was just saying only a couple of months ago that, um, you know, talking about the court and saying you know we're not a bunch of partisan hacks and you get these sort of the, the constant uh, refrain from all all justices actually on the supreme court saying you know, we're not partisan we're not a partisan institution um and, and there's this sort of sense in which courts need, feel the need to kind of hide their um true motives they sort of think of themselves as non-partisan institutions of course you're showing in the book that they are very partisan indeed and that's something which which i and many many others in our own work um sort of find reinforce that 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 vision um, and so i mean i just maybe this is a silly question but just i mean who are they kidding i mean who who exactly does anyone believe that courts are actually apolitical um you know what yeah where's the where's the sort of legalist model in all of this i mean adam i don't know whether you have any thoughts on this uh it's perhaps a bit of an unfair question <laughs> yes i have many thoughts um so, so I'll, I'll back up so uh, the question of who are they kidding i, I think there's um there's just sort of a, a little song and dance that often goes on um, uh, on the courts because of the sort of tenuous position that they're in. That they don't want to outwardly be or be seen as a actively partisan or political institution. Judicial legitimacy in many ways um, is tied back to this notion that is this impartial um, decision-making body that will be deliberative and be fair. Um, we have ample evidence that in many areas of law, um, partisanship just swamps everything else that's going on in terms of how um, justices are making decisions. It's not universal. There are many areas of law where partisanship doesn't seem to be particularly predictive or determinative about how judges are ruling. But in the areas that the public seems to care about most, um, like abortion, civil rights, uh, education, you do see this really strong partisan element to what's going on in the courts. Now, the courts have this um, pretty difficult game to play, right? So if you were a politician and you were trying to um, uh, claw back reproductive rights in the United States, if you were a Republican, you would probably be trying to take credit for that. As a justice on the Supreme Court, you may want to achieve that policy goal, but you don't want credit for it. (laughs) So they have like a very different set of public-facing incentives uh, relative to what you would get from a politician even if the actions or the policy outcomes that they're, they're creating actually look very much like what you would get um, from, uh, from a legislative institution. And I think this um, also um, uh, sort of plays back to, to this notion that, that Mike was talking about in terms of um, partisanship does have an important role to play in sort of uh, 
sort of this fight over the um, the, the, the judiciary. And uh, one of the like the sort of alignment periods of alignment and misalignment that we see in American politics. Um, like we, we've seen this happen over you know multiple centuries now, and there have been periods when the judi- the uh, legal profession, um, and by virtue of that, the courts, because the judges are all drawn from the legal profession, were very conservative. Um, so one of the biggest fights we saw with the judiciary was during um, uh, the uh, the Franklin Roosevelt uh, administration during the New Deal era where uh, policy was moving very far to the left relative to where it had been at the time. And the courts were sort of the stopping, uh, a stopping point for a lot of these progressive New Deal policies at the time. And it was a very conservative institution. And um, what we saw was politicians at that time pushing back and saying, we need to inject more partisanship into the courts because the courts were already partisan, even though they say they aren't. Um, and if we don't put more liberal pro-New Deal um, justices on the court, it's going to be a problem for um, for policymaking for politicians. And so that's sort of a dynamic that we saw emerge very clearly then. Things have reversed in a lot of ways. That the, judicia- that the legal profession tends to be much more liberal uh, than the average citizen or the average politician in the United States. And so... Partisanship and this sort of fight, but it really sort of is an important element of this overall fight between uh, where the bar lawyers are in terms of what they want the judiciary to look like and uh, what what the two different parties want. And that that really creates right now in an era of extreme polarization, um, a really serious dynamic where uh, there aren't many, many politicians who are going to go out and say that the courts aren't partisan um, if it doesn't suit them in that given in that given moment. And so, you know, Republicans aren't going to say it so much about the Supreme Court, but um, they may not be so upset about saying about certain state Supreme Courts that may be more liberal than, than they otherwise or could be relative to politicians in that state. I, I think I've come around to, to having a more charitable view of the justices themselves. I think some of them who say that they're not partisan hacks genuinely believe that they're not partisan hacks. Um, but of course, like, I'm not sure we should take what they say at face value. Um, like we should pay attention to their votes and kind of how those line up with what we would expect given what we know about their ideology and partisan appointments. Um, so I think they genuinely, I think some of them genuinely believe it. And in fact, Justice Breyer just wrote an entire book about it. Um, so I, I, have, I, I have no reason to doubt that they are genuinely held views by the justices and other judges that they are not partisan or motivated by partisan or ideological considerations, but the evidence is really hard to ignore. So they right. might believe it, um, but it's still, you know, it's still descriptively accurate. Um, so I, I'm that's that's kind of where I'm at after having listened to a lot of uh, justices claim that they're not voting in a partisan way. Right. So we're not in the business of of, of judging the sincerity or otherwise of any particular judge or justice's um, uh, uh, positions, yeah. but 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 certainly what what we can do from on the basis of these wonderful data sets that you've amassed and all this brilliant statistical work that you're doing in the book is that we can we can look, we can judge by their actions and we can look at their behaviours and we can uh, look at their writings and there's all sorts of things that we can say about uh, very uh, persistent partisan um, relationships. Well, I think also like I, I think that, that like kind of on this point that justices and the judges, judges in general are very sensitive to their reputations and they care a lot about what law professors and legal elites think. 
And so it's very important for them to at least kind of pretend or hold out that they are not being motivated by partisan politics, because if all of a sudden they admitted that, it would kind of make the whole facade crumble, right? Like, what's the point of going to an elite law school if at the end all you have is just partisan voting, right? What's the point? What's the point of these fancy oral arguments when in the end it's just being predicted by partisan affiliation? So it's a bit like they have to go through these motions and kind of kind of believe that believe this and reinforce this because otherwise the whole facade just starts to crumble. Right. I mean, they have the, they have this language, right? They have the language of the law in which they are able to express these 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 visions, and so and so they are constrained in that way. And and um, I, I think um, it, this comes, I think, to this point about alignment, because one of the things that I, I mean, I love this book. I, I just love it. I mean, you've got this incredible data set, but you've also got this amazing historical material as well. And you're kind of coming back to the very, or, you know, the sort of very um, uh, origins of 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 uh, these these disputes in 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 time. And so. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is, and this is what Adam was talking about just now, and we've got this symbiotic relationship, at least in these early years, with the with where um, you've got the alignment of the interests of the lawyer class and you've got the political class, and they are in, in lots of ways connected with one another. Um, but then you sometimes um, have these periods of time where one is skewing one way ideologically and one the other way. So you've got lawyers who are in 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 this way you're you're talking about how they're skewing left, and then you've got the you've got um, uh, uh, sort of judges skewing right and politicians skewing right. And th these interests are not always aligned ideologically, even if they are aligned sometimes professionally. And so, I mean, Adam spoke to this a little bit, but Maya, I wonder if you could sort of take this up again, this, this point about polarization and, and how that kind of ten those tensions can grow and maybe damage that symbiosis that you're describing that seems to have maybe occurred for periods of time yeah, it's it's really interesting. And, you know, one, I think one point to highlight here is that Adam and I wrote the book about the legal profession and kind of this tension between legal elites and political elites. But honestly, um, in the United States, I think, and I, and Adam can weigh in on this if he disagrees, but it's a tension about expertise more generally. So in the last decade, decade and a half, there has been emerging polarization um, that corresponds to education. So among highly educated professions, lawyers, doctors, but also scientists, engineers, people with high levels of extra expertise across different policy arenas, those, those people are leaning left and left and left and kind of more increasingly more left. And that generally creates um, potential problems for a right-leaning party, because if you're trying to recruit and attract expertise or you're trying to claim expertise and the experts are increasingly leaning toward the other side, it presents obvious challenges. And so you can try to do a couple of things. You can demean expertise. You can say expertise is, is politicized and you can attack the experts. And we've seen a lot of that um, outside of the law, right? I mean, it, the, the whole COVID-19 pandemic has basically been an evolving um, a like series of attacks from the right on expertise. Or what you can do is you can politicize the process and you can make it so that the experts that are chosen whatever in whatever field, envir in environment, climate, pandemic science, public health, in whatever law, in the case of judges, whatever field, you want to introduce political metrics to select your experts. You want to pull it. We, we would in our, in our book, we call this politicization, right? So you want to introduce ideological selection to get the experts that you want. And so as the parties polarize, as these, these patterns become more and more, I, I guess, real and concrete, you see um, 
kind of attempts to introduce selection on the basis of ideology, politics, things that correlate with those things. You politicize school boards, you you want to elect judges, you want to have political appointments across all facets of government. And so like what we see in judges and what we document in our book is that in places where where that's happened, you see largely Republican party leaders try to move toward the election of judges or the political appointment of judges or some sort of political vetting that then ends up selecting the kind of judges that you want ideologically. But my, I think my broader point, my broader, I guess a cautionary point is that that's, that pattern is not limited to judges. And we've certainly seen that emerge in the last four or five years. And there's some great stuff in the book about, I mean, you're, you're comparing um, the sort of law- lawyers with other comparable professions, aren't you? And you're th- sort of thinking about the, the how, ways in which they might be skewing themselves ideologically as well. I mean, I was just wondering about that. I mean, because clearly there's, there's some sort of generational effect, isn't there, right? And you're talking about um, uh, this, this happening over a, a period of time in the last few decades, um, that, that those people in those professions moving towards the left. Is there a life cycle um, effect as well? I mean, you, you talk, I think you mentioned at one point age, but, but you know, because I'm just trying to get a sense of just the scale of the issue here, because it's, it's the, you know, you're, you're describing these, the, the um, situation in which the political class is moving to the right in various ways, at least in the Republican Party, you've got the sort of tack to the right, but at the same time, you've got a sort of lawyer class that's going towards the left. I'm just wondering how worried we should be about this um, and whether there might be some, I, I, don't, I don't know whether you want to speak to this, the, the sort of um, whether, whether, whether life cycle effect might save us um, uh, or, you know, is this, is this a sort of um, uh, people are just tacking all to the left and, and you see that being the, the sort of um, the chief dynamic going into the future? Um, so in terms of life cycle effect, are you um, thinking more of, um, so you have these generational effects, and then right, people, people becoming more conservative. Better. Yeah, as they as they as they um, age. So there is some evidence that that does happen at some level, um, but this usually, as people get older, at least in American politics, um, that move to uh, the right is pretty subtle, um, and it's much smaller than the overall uh, generational trends that we see um, basically pervasively through American politics right now. Um, but they were really foreshadowed by what we saw among the professional class, the highly educated class. Um, so I'll explain a little bit what I, what I mean by that, because Maya um, gave a very, very uh, eloquent, eloquent and uh, helpful explanation of why this really matters. Um, so overall in American politics, young voters right now, generationally, millennials, Gen Z, um, are very, very democratic. Um, we've seen periods like this before, um, actually during the New Deal era, um, uh, people who grew up in the 1910s and 1920s uh, happened to be extremely democratic and they voted democratic their entire lives. Um, and you can see this in sort of uh, 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 voting trends over time. But essentially, the year you were born, for instance, is actually a pretty good predictor of your partisanship. Um, and right now, we see we're in a moment where about two thirds of people who are um, you know, in their 20s are, are voting Democratic, but it's even significantly higher among um, the professional class. So um, Maya and I have uh, another paper with um, uh, several of our frequent co-authors uh, where we look at this question of ideological uniformity within um, uh, the legal academy. And part of that project is looking at how liberal um, uh, graduates of, of elite law schools are um, 
And it's, you know, in a lot of elite law schools, actually the majority of them is about 80 to 90% that are, that are liberal. And this, this is not unusual for uh, um, the professional class um, among doctors now. Some, a, a profession that just as recently as the 90s was a um, sort of bedrock Republican constituency uh, as an interest group. Younger doctors now, they're, they've been recently on the floor of the AMA advocating for universal health care in the United States, which is a complete reversal. And you see this in the data very clearly as well, that doctors, young doctors are very liberal and we, you see this generational turn that's really fast. And since this is happening across all these areas of expertise, it, it does have some real ramifications. And I think one of the potentially, potentially scarier um, aspects of it is if conservatives and Republicans feel like scientific or empirical expertise are not in their interest to promote, um, that becomes a real problem for a functioning democracy. And um, that's the type of thing that like we have been seeing play out um, with the COVID pandemic. And I think, I think it's going to get worse. I don't think it's going to get better, uh, at least in the, in the intermediate term. So this is really fascinating. And I, I think in particular, this point about the way uh, the uh, 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 elite law school graduates coming out and being very much on the left side of the spectrum and the relative scarcity of conservative law graduates um, being quite an important factor in your analysis in relation to the some of the power of these conservative legal organizations like the Federalist Society and so on. And I mean, I mean, you, know, you might think that that's about strategic now. you know, that these organizations are just great at organizing. They're great at raising money. They're great at, um, at what they do. But um, and then that's why they're so powerful and prominent. But you're sort of drawing, I think, also from this point about just the, the scarcity story with respect to conservative graduates that's maybe helping to explain the prominence of some of these conservative legal organizations. Um, I wondered, Adam, I mean, would you be able to just elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners? I think that's quite an interesting, quite an interesting point you make in the book. Yeah, so uh, one of my favorite graphs in the book, I, I remember we made this early on, it was uh, Maya had this idea that we should look at, if we look at graduates of these elite law schools, um, is it much harder to become a clerk or a, um, a judge, a federal judge, if you're liberal? Um, I think Maya had the perspective because she, she also attended an elite law school, so she sort of knew what, what, what the uh, environment was like. Uh, but when we made that graph, it was just sort of wild that if you're a um, uh, sort of a liberal elite law school graduate, um, your probability of becoming a federal judge um, is about a tenth as high as if you were a very conservative uh, elite law school graduate, right? So you have this sort of labor market that emerges out of this demand for judges, which is pretty evenly split. There's, given that the political system has been pretty split between um, Democrats and Republicans over the last few decades, um, there's, uh, you know, about 50, 50, uh, uh, about half of judges come from each party, um, roughly speaking over that period. And so, but that's not the, um, the same for the types of uh, uh, graduates of elite law schools, right? So law schools are generating a lot more democratic-leaning um, graduates and the demand is completely out of whack. And so that's partly um, why we have seen the emergence of really powerful organizations like the Federalist Society. Um, there are counterparts on the left, but they're really not quite as important because the left doesn't, the Democrats don't need to go out and sort of 
groom um, people to become judges because they have this huge pool to pull, pull from. And the same thing's true for uh, clerks, which is a really important professional stepping stone for, for a lot of lawyers. Um, and so on the federal, on the, on the, on the conservative side, you've, you've seen this federalist organization being seen as incredibly effective because they're trying to solve this sort of labor supply problem for, for judgeships. And, um, and, and that's what these sort of labor market dynamics are quite interesting as well, because they completely cut against sort of an individual's professional interests, right? Like, so if you thought that the best, if you wanted to become a judge and you were a, a, a law student, probably the best thing you should do, you could do would be become conservative, but no one does that. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, it's like changing your entire identity. And so it, it is sort of this weird, but really important dynamic that, that we observed. Right. So talking about this, the, the, the um, change and, and how these things might come into um, uh, alignment or, or out of alignment with one another, the, 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 the sort of um, the bar being more liberal on the one hand and then the kind of powerful politicians being more um, conservative. And you do point to a time, of course, you mentioned, Adam, where the opposite was true in the sort of New Deal period where you've kind of got uh, uh, more conservative interests in the uh, legal class versus a sort of more liberal on the politician side. Um, and so, I mean, I guess just the question is just how how can this change? I mean, um, I was thinking about Steve Tellersmeyer and, and, and the sort of alignment of the legal marketplace and the judicial marketplace and there's sort of like a lag. Um, and uh, But ultimately these sort of things come into alignment with one another in some way, um, sort of maybe not in the sort of Dalian um, political court approach, but just, um, I'm just wondering how quickly change can take place um, in terms of moving yourself from a situation where you, which we saw during the New Deal era and, and then sort of to today um, and, 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 and how that might change in the future. I, I have to admit, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if Adam does. But I think one, one missing piece in all of this is the collapse of the center right in American politics. Um, so I think you know, in terms of talking about the landscape of expertise, and we can focus on law students, but I think it applies more generally, the collapse of the center right is devastating. So if you if you don't have that, then you have people, many people who are on the left, and then you have one extreme on the right. And that's a very unhappy place to be, I think, at a place like Harvard Law School or Yale Law School or something like that. That would entail kind of very extreme polarization has the potential to radicalize the people on the right kind of even further. So I know that there are conversations kind of at the at the level of these fancy graduate programs at certainly at where I work at the Kennedy School. I think there are conversations about like, what do we how, how can we diversify our faculty um, expertise and how can we diversify uh, faculty and student voices to kind of capture ideological diversity as well. And I think that's really speaking to kind of the absence of the center right as sort of a potent intellectual force on some of these campuses. So there have been kind of pushes in that direction. Like we need to have conservative faculty members who can mentor and train kind of conservative students um, who are who are kind of supporting or representative of that, of that center right position. I think that's where Maybe Adam can like weigh in if he kind of agrees with us, but I think that's where most of the efforts have been. Um, in terms of kind of the national political landscape, uh, the the weakness of the center right has I think emboldened the the more right wing components of at least the Republican Party, and we're kind of seeing the effects of that 
definitely percolating through the judicial system in terms of the nature of the appointments that the Republican Party has made um, to the federal bench. They like the, the judges that Donald Trump appointed were, you know, even conditional on being Republicans. They were by far more conservative than judges that were appointed by George W. Bush or um, uh, the first George Bush. Right. So they're moving farther to the right. And we could probably expect that a subsequent Republican administration. I mean, I guess it, it depends on who that would be, but we might expect that trend to continue. So that would be reflect that would that would reflect further polarization within the courts as the Republican Party moves to the right. I think I mean, sorry, Adam, do you want to come in on that that at all? No, I, I think mine made some really good points there. I think she's right on. I mean, I think it fits. It fits very much with this. The, a lot of this metaphor, um, I think, is always in the background um, in your um, great book, and that's sort of this fault lines uh, idea that you get these sort of tensions that kind of rise and rise and rise, and then maybe there's a sort of earthquake, um, and you get a sudden flurry of reforms, and 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 obviously, no, earthquakes are notoriously challenging to predict, aren't they? I mean, the geologists sort of have their work cut out trying to work out whether the uh, when these um, uh, plate slippages are going to happen, and I, I'm just um, I mean, my thoughts, of course, are turning. I'm sure many of our listeners will be as well to the Biden administration's uh, commission um, on the Supreme Court and sort of considering the court's role, the constitutional system. I'm sure you're both smiling. I can see you've probably got a lot to say about this. Um, and and sort of thinking in particular about the the commission's efforts to you know think about reforms that might help to preserve the Supreme Court's legitimacy. I mean, what does your um, Adam, I mean, what, what does your book have to say, um, perhaps, about the prospect for any reforms the commission might suggest, um, and uh, the, you know, the way, way whether or not the, the commission will be able to actually fulfil its mission in any in any um, uh, substantial fashion? So I'm actually going to pass this to Maya because this is <laughs> go for it, go for it. <laughs> um, so I think so. If we step back and we can think about this a couple of different ways. So thinking about the ju- the judicial tug of war framework. You know, one thing one thing that we predict is that there are parties pulling on both sides of this tug of war and the courts are kind of in the middle. And right now the Supreme Court at least has shifted pretty far to the right. So it's a it's a six three conservative majority or a you could conceive of it as a five four super conservative majority, depending on what you think about John Roberts. So it's a very conservative court that I think most political scientists would agree, all political scientists would probably agree, is is quite out of step with the with where the public is. Um, and it's certainly out of step with the Democratic Party, right? So in the terms of the tug of war, one you can you can think of the parties as being kind of separate and right now the, the Democratic Party has the reins and they're trying to pull. Now, in terms of reform, that becomes very tricky for the Supreme Court because the contours of the court, the highest court in the land, are described in the Constitution. So the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress have to work with the fact that the Constitution is clear about some things and not on others. So one thing that the Constitution is clear about is that judges should serve during a time of good behavior, which has been kind of interpreted to mean that um, they serve life appointments. And life appointments are not very popular um, for judges. So most people support some kind of term limits. Every major democracy has term limits for its highest court. It's very unusual to have a high court with lifetime appointments. So the one of the consensuses coming out of the Supreme Court Reform Commission was that term limits would be really 
great and appear to be supported and would engender a lot of good in terms of stabilizing appointments and regularizing them so that you could avoid things like strategic retirements. But on the one hand, I think that the draft report was very aware of the fact that there could likely be very serious constitutional challenges and there would have to be a serious consideration of the constitutional issues involved. Um, And then the other big one, I think, is court expansion. And I think that that, um, well, (laughs) I'm curious to hear what Adam thinks, but I think that that one is like was considered as not being something that the, the commission wanted to to move forward in part because they envision kind of retaliation from um, the next party that occupies the White House, and that could potentially lead to an escalation in terms of the size of the Supreme Court. Um, so I think that that one is probably not where they're going to they're going to be going. I think it's going to be more cautious. They're going to be like much more cautious in how they approach that one. And t- those two taken together, I think, means that we're largely going to have a status quo. Re- outcome here. I don't really see kind of how they're going to thread this needle in a way that's going to make anyone super happy, except for the people who are pushing for the status quo. Now, I think um, Adam and I have talked about this. There are other kinds of reforms that I think are maybe less um, obvious to members of the public, but could potentially be very significant, such as restricting the court from hearing certain kinds of cases or requiring that there be a supermajority vote for things like overturning an act of Congress. Um, as far as I can tell, that that has not occupied as much attention um, from the commission yet, but that that could potentially be an area where there there could be some movement in a way that would make liberals uh, more happy with with what they what they write. I don't know. That's so interesting. Is there any polling on on support for that? Because I've read loads of stuff about the term limits. I mean, obviously, that's yeah. that's that's massively supported by the American public. But but is there anything on some of these other proposals or are these sort of um kind of on the, on the down there at the moment? I don't think so. But, you know, one thing that this is some other work that I have with some collaborators. Um, one thing that's true is that people tend to us, people tend to underestimate how conservative the court is. Um, I think that's going to change in the next year. We, Adam and I were talking before we started recording about how just how important some of the issues are that are coming up before the court and the fact that it's such a strong right. conservative majority. I think that's maybe going to open up some people's eyes to how conservative it's become. And that we would expect would increase support for reform measures. So I I haven't seen any polling on some of the other proposals, but I would be surprised if support for those proposals didn't didn't go up pretty sharply after this year. Right. After abortion, gun control, religious freedom. Affirmative (laughs) action. Affirmative action. Right. So just huge, huge. I mean, this is just about one of the most controversial terms coming up. It's going to be so explosive and it's hard to see how it sidesteps that. So maybe maybe we, we, we ought to have had this conversation in, have another conversation in a year's time and just and just and just reflect and um i i mean the, i don't know adam whether you want to, to add anything on that point um yeah so uh, just on the sort of institutional change and fault lines framework um one quick point is when we look at the federal level um the, the federal courts they have been very stable um for long periods of time when you zoom out and look at the states the so every state has sort of a, a court system that, that's structured somewhat like the federal level, but there's just amazing institutional variation. There's 
many different ways judges are, are selected and chosen. There are term limits in some places. There's um, different ways that the lower courts are, are organized. And these have all, like we've seen um, frequent and pretty constant change uh, in the, at the state level. And so we, we don't necessarily rule that out as something that's institutionally feasible. It just seems much harder at the federal level. And um, Maya brought up this, uh, this point about um, uh, potentially having sort of super majoritarian rules. So like a, or have to have seven justices, for instance, um, agree to overturn an act of Congress as unconstitutional. I, I think that that's a very long shot um, reform because it's very hard to see how that happens without the court itself deciding to do so. Um, but uh, from, from what I've learned from uh, writing this book with Maya, I, I think the real a long-term reform that needs to be considered is not just how do we deal with these partisan conflicts right now, but how do we actually think of the court and sort of bring it back to a place that it can act like a more um, or less sort of partisan and political institution, the way that we see in a lot of Western European democracies. The court's extremely important in the UK, but um, it's rare that it's asked to, it's asked to deal with these um, really big issues. Like it had to weigh in on Brexit, for instance, because the legislature or parliament could not manage to do so itself. But in the US, the court sort of this wild card that's moving everywhere. And so, you know, as, as someone who teaches American political institutions, the thing, if I could make one change to our system right now, would be I would get rid of the filibuster in the Senate and I would create a filibuster for the Supreme Court uh, just to rebalance uh, sort of the power of those two institutions. Uh, that's not that wouldn't be costless uh, as as a reform. Not everything, not all reforms are uh, are going to universally make things better. But I think, given the trajectory of everything, that's sort of the direction that I I think things should go. It's interesting that you say that, Adam, because that ties back into what you said at the beginning, right? So there there are reasons why many politicians want to punt or defer really difficult policy decisions to the Supreme Court. Right. On something that's like fairly unpopular, like restricting reproductive rights, you know, you don't you don't want to have that vote in the Senate. You want the court to deal with it. Um, and so they're like kind of in, there are like self-interested reasons why they let the court handle some of this stuff. So I don't I mean, I don't know if like there's even an appetite for doing that because it's politically convenient to let the court handle this stuff. Like, you know, the court this year is probably going to strike down. Um, gun rights legislation across 20, 20, 25 states. Um, they're going to likely overturn affirm the use of affirmative action in like many blue states. I mean, it, it's, this is stuff that, you know, members of Congress don't want to touch with a 10 foot pole. <gasps> but I mean, is the court going to want to? I mean, this is the thing because it comes back to these points about institutional maintenance and kind of the strategic um, considerations. I mean, you know, do the, do the robes and the theater help them survive? I mean, you know, how does this, how does it, um, uh, you know, after this term, I mean, I think, you know, how does it sort of see itself? Um, how does it project itself? I don't know whether, I mean, there's, there's some, there is some work, isn't there, about Supreme Court approval and the, the extent to which this institution is, uh, I mean, it certainly does better than the other institutions of federal um, uh, government um, in terms of approval ratings on, on, on the whole, but, but, it, but its approval has been dropping um, I don't know whether you see that as being a, a, a trend that's setting in, that it's it's going to, public approval of the Supreme Court is going to be decreasing over time, um, or, or whether this is a blip and it's going to be able to bounce back after this really controversial term. 
I think that the less people know about it, the higher the approval rating usually is, just because people don't know very much about it. The more that people know, the less the less they tend to like it. Um, and this term is poised to, I think, um, kind of elucidate a lot of conservative leanings that people aren't going to be happy with. Uh, I, th- I think primarily on guns and abortion. I think affirmative action is kind of unpopular. So, you know, if, if that's um, ruled unconstitutional, I think that's probably not as big as the other issues. So I would anticipate that the approval ratings are going to con- continue to drop and there's going to be increasing conversations about reform. The, the, I think the question is whether, like, how low would approval and how high would anger have to go in order to for that to translate into some of the things that Adam is talking about? And I, I don't think we're there yet, but maybe we will be by the end of, a you know, two or th- three or four years of um, the, the Kavanaugh court, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, please. And, and I, I think for the courts, too, they're... They're not up for re-election. And so their real fear in the long run is um, that people, that, that other institutions and individuals won't listen to what the court's saying. So um, there's this uh, uh, concept of nullification uh, that uh, had, had has arisen in the, in the past in the United States where states just simply said, we're not going to follow what the Supreme Court said. Uh, and I just see no discussion of that in any political circles on the left. And so I just don't think we're anywhere near where the Supreme Court would actually have to sort of pay a price for um, the direction it's moving. I know maybe in five years, everything will be different, but I think that sort of like public opinion we know matters a lot and the Supreme Court pays a lot of attention to that. And I think uh, one thing that the Supreme Court will probably be more careful about as it moves to the right, um, they won't, they'll try to avoid cases like Citizens United, which became this like focal point. And so you could have maybe 10 cases that sort of um, erode reproductive rights in the United States. Uh, and I think the, the effect on public opinions can be much less in, 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 uh, compared to if there was just one opinion that just struck down Roe v. Wade and that was now the law of the land. And so I, I think there's lots of ways for the court to tread lightly in ways that will help protect its public opinion. Um, but I think the end result will probably look pretty much the same. That's so fascinating. Because I mean, I suppose people think that this this Mississippi Jackson case is going to be the vehicle that overturns Roe v. Wade, aren't they? But um, but I mean, I, I suppose, and I suppose the, the court is, I mean, this is a high information environment, right? That the judges and justices do have a, a pretty high degree of um, foreknowledge about the sorts of cases that are likely to provoke that sort of conflict and, and, and that might become, I, I mean, whether they're anticipated in relation to, certainly there would have been an anticipation in relation to Citizens United that this could be a very explosive case. Um, uh, presumably they see that about the court, the um, uh, uh, cases that they're seeing in the current in the current term. But I mean, I, I don't want I st- to, I, I, clearly the conversation at the moment is about the, the federal Supreme Court. There's a whole load of wonderful stuff in your book about state courts and i don't want to um do our listeners out of a sense of that um you 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 give some vignettes don't you of of various situations in which um state courts um have have have, have seen a sort of a backlash from the political class in terms of in terms of the um movement of trying to to politicize appointments um uh, as opposed to going from going for a more sort of non-political merit-based approach um uh, in Florida and, and elsewhere and Kansas and so on. Um, so um, do you think that there's a fundamental 
divergence. I mean, Maya mentioned this very briefly towards the beginning um, between the sort of fate of the federal Supreme Court and the fate of the state courts, the courts, um, the lower courts, um, in terms of the dynamics that you describe in your book. I can I can take a crack at that. So I think one of the takeaways of our work is that the forces of the tug of war, kind of the tension between the legal establishment and political actors, actually depend quite a bit on the fashion in which judges are chosen. So in some states, judges are elected. In other states, there's this system called merit commissions where groups of lawyers kind of band together and then they will propose a slate of candidates for the governor and then the governor can agree to appoint those candidates or there's some selection from that slate. But in those states, in the states that have merit commissions, lawyers are actually pretty actively involved in the selection of judges. Um, And then, of course, at the federal level, it's basically at the behest of the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. So it's done by political actors, by politicians exclusively. So what kind of judges you end up with is really a function of that. So if you're in a system that gives a lot of leeway to politicians, Um, It turns out that politicians will basically choose judges that they want. And so the judges in that state will look a lot like the judge, like the politicians in terms of their ideologies. Um, If you have a system that's like the federal system where politicians are appointing judges, then it's also it's the same. Right. Um, If you have a system where it's judges are elected, then judges are going to look like what that you know the preferences of voters and so because of that they're going to look really similar to politicians um whereas like in places that have like these merit commissions they're going to look a lot like the preferences of lawyers in that state so it it actually like kind of depends a lot on the existing judicial selection system now one thing that's true is that if politicians don't like what courts are starting to look like over time, they'll try to change the way judges are selected. So they're in a state where if conservative politicians are really disliking the merit commission system and they really think that like the the judges that are being selected through the merits commissions are too liberal, then guess what? They're going to push for the election of judges and they're going to push for the selection of judges by the governor. They're going to push for ways to select judges that will result in a court that's more to their liking. So one thing that you very frequently see is kind of in places where judges are elected, you'll see a push toward um, partisan, what we would call partisan elections, where the party of the judge is made explicit to voters. So that's like a very simple thing that could be done that would generate more judges that are to your liking if you're conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, it's like things like that, that I think, um, that the states, the variation across the states, uh, you can see that more clearly with the states because there's more variation in how judges are selected. At the federal system, it's hard because in the Constitution, it says that judges have to be appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. So they're always going to be appointed. They're always going to be appointed by politicians and they're always going to reflect the preferences of the politicians in power. But at the state level, you see a lot of variation and you see a lot of push right now. Um, as we have for the last 10 years, by primarily Republicans to shift selection more toward what we would call politicized mechanisms. So things like the partisan election of judges, selection by the governor or by the state legislative assembly, things like that. Right, right. And you've got this wonderful empirical variation that you can exploit to to look at 
to, to try to, to determine that to disentangle the effect of these different systems of, of mechanisms of judicial selection. And I mean, there's one thing that we one thing you mentioned there, Maya, which I think we, we haven't talked a bit about because we've, we've been thinking a lot about this uh, politicians incentives in all of this. But you talk about lawyers incentives and there's a sort of another concept that is a really major part plank of this book. It's not just about the judicial tug of war, uh, which I like, a metaphor I like very much, but it's also about this idea of um, captured judiciary, of constitutional capture. And you've got these. Um, so we know a lot about regulatory ca capture, you know, bureaucratic agencies coming to sort of be dominated by the industries that they are supposed to be regulating. Um, uh, how does that analogy, Adam, work in the judicial realm? Um, yeah, so the idea so that um, this idea that we sort of um, develop a sort of judicial capture um, comes out of the, this notion of um, so traditional sort of regulatory capture that we think about, uh, say with the banks or railroads or these large industries, um, has this component that there's some governmental regulatory body, uh, usually within the bureaucracy, uh, that these interests can eventually sort of take hold of and sort of turn around uh, and make it less about regulation within the public interest and more about regulating these industries in the interests of those interests themselves. So the railroads can set up a system where um, the regulation is very lucrative for them. Uh, in, in terms of the, um, the, the uh, legal profession, we have a very different, but I guess more extreme dynamic. Um, uh, so there's a saying that the most um, extreme form of capture is self self-regulation. So this notion that there shouldn't be a regulatory body that's external from, say, a profession or an industry. It should be the industry itself that regulates itself. And this is this is the outcome that lawyers in the United States have enjoyed um, uh, basically forever, right? And it goes even deeper than that. So um, one of the things we show in the book is like lawyers in Congress are far more likely to vote in favor of um, uh, legislation when it has to do with what the American Bar Association wants on an issue, especially when it comes to regulating the legal profession, say setting fee structures or um, saying who can become a lawyer. Uh, these types of these types of important questions for the industry itself. Um, and but it, but the challenge is it's actually a little further than that because the legal profession is again interesting because it's on the one hand it's been described as sort of a Janus figure where you have one face of the legal profession looking towards sort of like um, its public role in, uh, in a democracy, um, which it has played for a very long time. And the other face is looking towards its economic interests. Uh, it's very lucrative to be a lawyer in the United States, especially if you're at really, um, a, a really uh, sort of prestigious law firm. And so you have these two, these two tensions uh, within the legal profession um, that, the, that there's this political and then also this sort of economic a set of interests. And uh, where things really come to a head is that it's not just about um, lawyers regulating themselves without any input from Congress or state legislatures. They actually have complete sort of cultural or in a way control of the main uh, of the courts within the states and at the Supreme Court. So you can't become a judge in the United States or effectively you can't become a judge if you are not already a lawyer. So part of that profession. And so you see in these states that the the system of regulation that's been set up in the United States for the legal system um, is that judges are the only 
uh, legitimate regulators of, of a legal profession. Now, if that if the courts are now your regulatory body, uh, you care a lot about who's going to be on those courts if you care about the interests of your industry. And one of the things that we see in terms of patterns in the United States comparatively is um, the types of outcomes we see from the legal system um, really are quite troubling. So on the one hand, there are more lawyers per capita in the United States than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Uh, the legal industry in the United States is this massive, uh, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar industry every year. It just dwarfs what we see um, in, in other countries. The UK is probably the closest, and uh, that has a lot to do with uh, um, intermingling and, and mergers between uh, law firms between the two countries. Uh, so we have this very, very sort of lucrative and populous industry. And then you look at questions like, um, you know, how, what, what is the ability of the average citizen to access and afford legal representation if they have a civil um, case that they need to they lit litigate? Uh, in the United States, uh, the, the, uh, the United States uh, on uh, rankings of, of this measure um, is, you know, somewhere like 110th. Um, it changes from year to year. Uh, out of country is we're behind, uh, say, Afghanistan. Right? And so we have this massive, really powerful industry. And if you're able to afford legal services, um, if you're really wealthy and you can afford the best legal services, you're in great shape. It's really hard for uh, accountability to, um, uh, to come for you uh, in a lot of these contexts. But if you're not part of that class, uh, you end up, um, you're pretty much out of luck in the United States. And I think that's pretty tragic uh, in a lot of ways. But it's also a function of an industry that's not regulated in the interests of the public. And because lawyers do have these economic interests, they also have these political interests, they don't want to let go of that. This is the main, if you go look at the American Bar Association's mission statement, the, the independence of the legal profession, essentially the self-regulation of the legal profession, is their main, um, main central organizing sort of mission. And... I think that the consequences that come out of that, I think they're not really, they, they haven't been um, really fully internalized by our political system or our public yet. And I think it's something that we really do need to grapple with, with when we think about reform of the legal profession. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, I think that it really sort of ties up the sort of conversations that I think this, this book is really provoking us to have about, not only about sort of variation in public policy outcomes and legal outcomes, but but also, but also the very foundations of democracy and of rights and of um, access to justice. Um, frankly, that I think that that, that underpins a lot of what you, of what you're saying. Um, I have one final question for you both, um, uh, and that is, you know, what next? I mean, where um, Maya uh, are you going next? You've mentioned a couple of things that you're working on at the moment, um, some projects that arise perhaps out of this this book. Um, uh, what, what's next for you? So I'm doing I'm doing a uh, work that's looking more I guess at the Supreme Court and the, the way that members of the public view the Supreme Court as being in step or out of step with public opinion. So this is work that's joint with Neil Mahotra at Stanford and Stephen Jesse at UT at the University of Texas, um, and we're finding in that work that um, that the Supreme Court really is moving in a direction that puts it pretty far out to the right compared to public opinion, and we're using some kind of interesting and novel uh, public opinion measures to try to get at that question, um, and a very interesting pattern that actually falls out of that is that 
um, the Supreme Court's moving pretty far to the right, but people don't perceive it as moving to the right. So people don't really appreciate just how conservative the court has become. They don't really see that um, and they don't expect that. And that's particularly the case among people who are left-leaning, so Democrats. So Democrats are particularly bad at realizing that the court has moved very sharply to the right. Um, Republicans are actually pretty good at recognizing it. I think it's because they've gotten a lot of elite messaging on this point. Like judges are very important to the Republican Party platform. And so they've internalized that the court has shifted, but Democrats have been slower on the uptake. And so um, this is part of an ongoing project that we're going to be pursuing for the next foreseeable future, looking at how that changes over time. And in anticipation of like blockbuster um, terms such as this one, it'll be really interesting to see what happens to these dynamics. Fantastic. How about you, Adam? Uh, well, so I remember it. When Maya and I first met, I remember thinking, I was doing this really great work on the courts. I have all this ideology and data work that I'm doing, but the really interesting stuff that's going to go on in the next decade is uh, in the judiciary. And uh, I think that was a good call at the time. Right now, I'm really starting um, to focus more on uh, electoral reforms. And I have a feeling that that's going to bleed back into the courts. I studied the courts in a while right now, uh, so I'm working a lot more with like understanding like different different ways that states can reform electoral institutions to increase turnout. Um, but as everything else in the American politics, uh, all roads lead back to the Supreme Court. So we'll see. On that note, um, I think that's a wonderful note for us to end. Um, just to say, Adam Maya, thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, the book. Uh, is The Judicial Tug of War, How Lawyers, Politicians and Ideological Incentives Shape the American Judiciary. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us.